Hello, good morning, and welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you're watching the video version of this, I might look a little bit disheveled, and that's because I just got done with a night shift, but the podcast must go on. Um, I need to get some sleep, and if you guys have been listening to this podcast, we recently just did talk about sleep, so make sure to go listen to this as well as the rest of our podcasts. Um, if you're new here, welcome to the show. We have a lot of amazing content that we've already recorded for you, so I hope you get a chance to go check that out. And if you're returning, thank you so much for coming back. We hope that this episode um, is also amazing and that um, you were able to get some value from it. And today we're getting back to kind of our bread and butter exercise, um, all of those kinds of things. And we have an excellent guest to do that. Um, so I can't wait to get into this episode and let's do it now. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Today, we're talking with um, Elwood Sierra, who is a chiropractor, and I hope I pronounced his name correctly. I take a lot of leverages with names. I always uh, kind of um, assume I'm going to pronounce them correctly, so you can correct me on that, but he is another <laughs> chiropractor. Um, if you guys have been listening to the show, then we had uh, Michael Rayon, who's a chiropractor, who doesn't really crack, and, um, and Dr. Sierra kind of does a very similar thing. We'll let him explain that a little bit more, but he specializes in chronic pain, helping build resiliency in his patients. He's a clinician and coach in Illinois. And um, you should definitely go follow him on Instagram because he has some incredible educational content delivered in a hilarious way most of the time. Some phenomenal memes. He's really involved in everything, stays up to date in the literature. And honestly, some of his posts are how I stay up to date in the literature. I'm like, oh, yeah, I should go read that. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wonderful introduction. You do me more justice than I deserve. Thank you for that. Well, no, your, your posts are actually real something. So <laughs> let's let's get into it. Why did you decide to become a chiropractor and what do you do now? What does your practice consist of? Sure. So I have a very um, pragmatic reason why I decided to become a chiropractor. More than anything else, it was actually because of the scope of practice laws associated with chiropractic. And I think that Michael Ray, when you had him on, touched on this regarding you know the diagnostic codes that we can use and the therapeutic codes that we can use as well. I just felt like at the time when I sort of made the decision to become a chiropractor, which was probably in my first couple of years of my undergraduate degree, where I really sort of honed in on one thing that I wanted to do, I just felt like they had more uh, liberty to do different things that I wasn't seeing. Um, and the reason that I felt that way is I actually did some research at the University of Iowa within the Iowa Biosciences Advantage Program. I worked in the Human Movement Analysis Lab, which was a lab that was just run by PTs, basically. Mm. And my, uh, my research mentor was a chiropractor. And he really sort of got into my ear and was like, hey, I think that you would do well in the clinic. Um, I think that you have, you know, natural proclivities to talking to patients well and educating patients and just seeing you kind of talk to people. And I think that you would do really well in sort of a chiropractic environment um, and the piece of paper, you know, the chiropractic license will allow you to do things that you want to do. So he got into my ear, had a good experience with Palmer College and the rest is sort of history. So. 
Definitely. It's always those mentors that kind of guide you towards um, where you don't necessarily know where you want to go, but all of a sudden they're like, they notice things in people and then they kind of uh, guide you through it, which is similar in my situation, similar in a lot of people that I've actually talked to in this podcast situation. So that's incredible. So what does your practice look like today? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? So right now I work in a sort of fitness facility that's comprised of a normal gym, which has a lot of powerlifting equipment and uh, machines. And then that's attached to a large yoga studio. And then attached to the yoga studio is my office. So my office is really sort of embedded in the atmosphere of the gym. Most of my patients are you know, strength and conditioning people who are super familiar with barbell style exercises and machine style exercises, bodybuilders, power lifters. Um, I have a couple patients who are um, avid yoga goers or yogis, um, but the majority of my patients are really familiar with strength and conditioning. So that's good for me because that's what I love to do. And um, I sort of work back and forth with the personal trainers and the owners at the gym uh, on a referral basis. So if someone gets hurt in the gym, they get to come see me right away, which is really nice. And those are the patients that I really enjoy working with people who are super self-motivated. And I can say, you know, that exercise that you were doing, let's modify it just this much. And it makes all the difference for those people because they have very high adherence to exercise programs, which is cool. Sure. My million dollar question now is, do you crack? Do you practice in the dark arts? <laughs> I believe it or not, I, I knew this question was going to come up. But I, <laughs> I do crack, but the way that I crack is probably similar to, I, I would say like a Chad Cook. I, I like to frame manual therapy, all manual therapy and sort of the framework that uh, Chad Cook uses. And I think that manual therapy, especially in accordance to what new papers like Jill Hayden's publication just showed is actually as useful for pain reduction as exercise. The caveat to that is that exercise is so good to improve a whole host of other markers that it's probably a better use of time. So it depends on the patient, of course, but um, I use manual therapy sparingly. Exercise is definitely my primary intervention, uh, but I do use it. It's not something that um, I shy away from particularly just because it exists. Definitely. I actually listened to the uh, Adam Meekins podcast um, with Joe Hayden on it uh, last night as I was going to the hospital. And um, I have yet to read the paper. Um, I'll get to it eventually. But I was also honestly pretty surprised seeing um, that manual therapy was as effective as exercise when it comes to pain specifically. Mm-hmm. And my personal biases, I went to an osteopathic school. I'm an osteopathic physician, which means we're also trained in the dark arts. Um, And I traditionally am not really that keen on manual therapy, especially in an acute hospital setting when it just patients are in need of a lot of other things and some osteopathic manipulation doesn't seem like it's the appropriate setting for it. Maybe in more of an outpatient setting, which I hope to do in the future. But um, I was definitely shocked by that as well. Um, And I think my future practice, I probably incorporated more like right at the beginning to help someone maybe feel a little bit better right at the beginning so that you can get them to more uh, meaningfully engage in exercise. So um, if it helps their pain, helps them exercise a little bit more, that'd be hugely beneficial. So I can agree with you there. Sure. Moving on now. Um, we are the Preventive Medicine Podcast, and it looks like you do practice a good amount of prevention. So what does preventive medicine mean to you? So pre- I think this question is, it's a good question, but holy moly, it's like so complex that I literally sat and thought about this for quite some time. And, uh, and that's why we like to ask it. <laughs> yeah. I think about it every time that I listen to the podcast too. I'm just like how would I respond to this question? So 
I think that uh, preventive medicine, my definition aligns pretty closely with what the general consensus of preventive medicine is. So I think it's really a clinical lens or a framework that you can use to address the disease or the patient's complaint um, by sort of looking at a myriad of different aspects of the patient's health. And I think that that definition is in line with what most people would say preventive medicine is. I th- just think that my implementation of preventative medicine is probably a little bit different. Um, the main thing that I think preventative medicine should really focus on, well, there's, there's sort of three main things. The number one, I actually want to borrow from Peter Stilwell and um, uh, Catherine Harmon in the, an active approach to pain. I think that utilizing that or at least some semblance of that, similar to the biopsychosocial model, really puts into context the patient's affordances, how they can interact with the world around them, what their personal aptitudes are. And that gives you a really good frame of reference for like, what is this patient like and how do they interact with the world around them and how can I actually help this person? So for me, preventative medicine includes affordances and how the patient can interact with their environment. Uh, Number two, I think that... um, preventative medicine has to really understand the etiology of disease. And I bring this up because in my realm and obviously your realm, most musculoskeletal complaints are self-limiting and they have a really good prognosis, especially like the 12 week mark, you know, 90 plus percent of low back pain will resolve within those first 12 weeks. And I think that if you don't understand the etiology of a disease, it's really easy to basically I don't want to say mess up, but let your care plan sort of go haywire and start choosing interventions that you probably don't need to choose because the condition is going to get better over time. And then uh, number three, I think it's super important to basically understand what you can offer as a clinician and then understand what your limitations are. And that kind of goes along with um, the previous point that I made. I think that uh, uh, an interdisciplinary approach to care and collaborating with other healthcare providers is incredibly important. Um, and I, I think that you have to understand what your capacity is to helping that patient um, as a clinician and then passing that patient along or co-managing that patient with another provider if you can't help them as much as you initially thought that you could. So those are sort of the, the three-pronged approach that I would say preventative medicine is. And it's sort of a clinical lens more than anything. It's, it's more of how you look at care than like actually employing interventions, I would say. Definitely. I like that. And I like how it uh, specifically applies um, and you applied it to musculoskeletal medicine um, because when it comes to musculoskeletal medicine, there are definitely some things that you um, kind of can and can't do. Um, when it comes to can't do, like sometimes you need to understand the scope of things. Things can't be prevented all the time. Um, some things are just going to happen, which is something you mentioned. Um, and at the same time, you have to kind of focus on what people want to do, which lends itself to the concept of affordances, um, which also John had brought up on one of our previous podcasts. So I love that as well. And then also co-management, which everyone can't do everything. Um, so that's also a very important concept. So we're one piece of care uh, leaves off another continues, so brings continuity and ultimately helps the patient. So love it. Um, we're going to get on to the actual meat of this podcast now, which is kind of um, approaching someone with an acute injury and kind of rehabbing them back into the world or to what they want to do with the concept of affordances. So you mentioned that a lot of musculoskeletal injuries will self-resolve or self-limited within 12 weeks. Um, so the first question I have for you is kind of what is the concept of self-management and why is that important in the context of injury and just generally for most people? Sure. So I'll focus on the 
sort of injury aspect of that question first, because I think it's the probably easiest to, to tackle. Um, I think that, you know, given the fact that I alluded to, you know, most musculoskeletal complaints being self-limiting um, and having a really good prognosis over time, I think that self-management is important because we have this habit of over-medicalizing and catastrophizing and nociboing the patient if we just throw a whole host of interventions at them. And I think that basically if the patient has the capacity to self-manage, you really change the narrative of their injury or their their disease or their chief complaint, whatever it may be. And if the patient understands that they're condition has a relatively good prognosis, they are more at liberty to sort of explore different things. And I think that changing that narrative regarding pain in their condition is super beneficial because the patient now understands that they're not this fragile, you know, amalgam of tissues. They're actually this living adaptable uh, system that can do different things and sort of play with different things and explore their own injury and um, diagnosis as they will. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's incredibly important. Definitely. I think what you alluded to there a little bit is that kind of, it puts the power back in the patient's hand um, when it comes to um, taking control of their life, taking control of their injury and all those things and not letting it get too far into the hands of someone else because someone's uh, individuals or patient's goal are not necessarily aligned with what the care provider and the care team have. Sure, they might be thinking, let's get this patient better. However, the patient has a whole bunch of other things going on in their life, whether it's like their other stressors, their career, their family, all those kinds of things. So self-management kind of helps them um, incorporate all of those different aspects into the aspect of their injury and take it all into account. So that's one of the things I think you're alluding to that I find really beneficial about self-management. What about in the context of general wellness? I think that general wellness, it might get a little bit more hairy because their general wellness encompasses a lot more you know, facets and it's a lot more complex than, than an injury, I would say. Um, but one of the things that I like for this sort of frame of reference of self-management is that it allows the patient to have different experiences. And I think that there is really no substitute for having those experiences. And I think that before you seek professional care, it's always a good idea to sort of dip your toe in the water and understand, okay, what are my limitations? What can professional care actually help me with? Uh, what goals am I actually trying to um, achieve? And how does that provider or that clinician or that person help me achieve those things? Like if you don't understand your own deficiencies, then you don't really know what to expect. And that person you know, may not necessarily be malicious, but they can sell you anything at that point in time if you are not sure what you're actually looking for out of that experience. And I think that's huge, um, what you just mentioned, because this is where a lot of people take advantage of other consumers and patients. Um, and this is something that pisses me off when it comes to musculoskeletal care, because everyone's trying to sell something, everyone's trying to make money, and it's the patient who ultimately pays the price for it because they're not necessarily getting any benefit out of it, but they are losing some money. So um, that's definitely an important point to take into account. Yeah, I think uh, that if you can, sorry to cut you off, but I just no, think go ahead. that... If you convince the person that they're sleeping wrong, that they're moving wrong, that they're squatting wrong, that they're existing wrong, that's a really good narrative to sell people something. That's a really, really bad narrative to actually empower the patient and improve your patient outcomes. So I think that 
maybe this is too political of, of a statement to make, but I think that I'll go for it. That's US, what we're here for. <laughs> U.S. healthcare is really confining in that way and puts the squeeze on conservative clinicians to basically become these you know, chiropractic or PT mills where you see such high volume and keep the patient indefinitely because if you have good outcomes, it's actually pretty, you know, disincentivized. So, and we actually had this conversation in the DMs after he posted um, about kind of equipping your patient with the knowledge about their pain. And then all of a sudden this patient doesn't need to come back. And what does that do that ultimately takes away from your paycheck or what you're trying to earn at your practice, which is unfortunate because good care is not rewarded and poor care, which is kind of um, taking the care out of the patient's hand and kind of going away from the concept of self-management is what seems to be rewarded. And that's definitely one of the frustrations that I've seen both in musculoskeletal medicine from like your perspective, what you would do, as well as in like the hospital and acute setting as well. It's pretty unfortunate. Um, when it comes to self-management, it kind of encompasses several components. One of those you kind of mentioned is um, exercise. So first off, do you just want to talk about what encompasses um, self-management and then we can dive into exercise after that? Yeah. So for, for self-management and exercise, I think that exercise fits nicely into self-management because it is a low adverse event, it is low cost, and it gives the, again, the patient or the person the ability to explore their own pathology or the diagnosis or their aches and pain. And I think that exercise is one piece of the pie that is very low tech and has a whole host of benefits um, that really, really help the patient gain some self-efficacy and become less afraid of the diagnosis or condition or ailment that they've been living with. I think that exercise is probably one of the most empowering things that you can actually partake in. Um, and it's something that has a whole host of benefits, can also help you mentally. It obviously helps you physically, can help you socially, depending on what form of exercise you actually include, like to sort of partake in. Um, I think it's probably one of the cornerstones of uh, self-management that needs to be explored and probably isn't explored and we know isn't sufficiently explored given the um, rates of exercise adherence in meeting the you know 150 minutes a week of moderate int intensity aerobic activity uh, and two days a week resistance training guidelines that uh, most people or a lot of the people i should say uh, aren't actually meeting so doing that exercise helps you on a, a various fronts and uh, I think needs to be included in the cornerstone of self-management. Definitely. And um, for you guys who are listening to this in the next podcast, that's going to be coming out of this. I kind of recorded a solo episode on exercise itself where there's some statistics kind of on the sedentary lifestyle epidemic. So make sure you stay in tune for that. But one of the barriers to exercise is kind of exercise selection. And we know that exercise is all these hosted benefits that you just mentioned. But sometimes when it comes to actually partaking in exercise, one of the things that stops people is kind of how do I choose what I'm going to do? And whether this comes to a um, period where it's general wellness or an acute injuries, people don't know how to select it. So um, let's break this down into two sections once again. So let's first tackle general wellness. When it comes to exercise selection, how can people select the appropriate exercises for themselves? So I think that for, if we're just looking at general wellness, the patient should be encouraged to participate in whatever exercise they're likely to adhere to. Um, that kind of changes in accordance to the patient's goals. So if someone say doesn't like resistance training, and I see this a lot with young clinicians who have a background in strength and conditioning, you can't just funnel that patient down the strength and conditioning pipeline. If that's something that you know that they are not going to adhere to. Um, I think that's 
bad management, probably a waste of everyone's time if they're not going to be able to reap the rewards of exercise. And we know that there, you don't really have to exercise in any particular way to reap the rewards of what exercise actually has to offer. And so exercising in the way that it's meaningful to the patient and that they're actually going to adhere to is the thing that I normally recommend. And whether that's, you know, going on walks with your significant other or walking your dog, um, or whether that's going to the gym and doing CrossFit or weightlifting, whatever the patient actually enjoys doing is what I generally recommend. And that's different if the patient is, you know, a weightlifter or a runner or just enjoys going on walks with their partner. Um, so the exercise selection is predicated on what the patient's goals are and, um, you know, what we think is actually feasible to achieve during our time together. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. So I think, yeah, that when it comes to exercise for general wellness, it should be relatively tailored to the patient and what they enjoy doing. And it's typically not that complicated. People like to make it really complicated for whatever reason with these specific protocols, but really it's not, it's pretty simple. However, it becomes even more complicated in people's minds when it comes to an acute injury. Um, how do they know what exercises to select? Are there specific exercises that are better than others? Some people have very specific protocols where if you do anything outside of those protocols, you risk furthering your injury. So how do you select appropriate exercises for someone depending on an injury? And I know there's a lot of injuries that someone can have, but kind of a general approach, what would you say? Yeah. So I think that I still probably borrow from this idea that the patient's goals sort of drive what our care is going to look like. So if the patient has the goal to obviously do barbell style movements, then we're going to select barbell style movements or close variations of those movements for the patient to actually do throughout their phase of rehabilitation. Uh, If the patient has more general goals than we go with more general exercises. I don't think that there are specific exercises that most people actually have to do if they don't have very specific goals. And we see this with, you know, the literature that comes out that has come out with, you know, Jill Hayden's uh, network meta-analysis where it doesn't seem to be the case that you need to do specific exercises to reap the goals of exercise. And the effects between and the differences between the exercise efficacy for pain is pretty small. I mean, some, you know, Pilates does seem to outperform other modes of exercise, but they all do reduce the severity of pain and improve function, which is the most important thing. And there's so many factors that can deter someone from exercising that I think it's important that we actually do utilize you know, all these different modes of exercise. And a lot of people found that, that paper as world shattering, you know, bias crushing. (laughs) And for me, you know, it certainly was because I do like strength and conditioning. Although the preponderance of evidence would suggest that, you know, what Jill was saying was hundred percent correct. Um, as so, you know, so far as we know, um, I just think that it's more important that the patient has something that's meaningful for them and that they adhere to something than it is for me to have them do this stepwise 
12 week progression that they don't really have any attachment to the adherence is low and they feel like has nothing really to do with the functional outcomes that they're actually trying to achieve. So I don't think there's very, you know, a specific specificity necessary there uh, for most patients. So long as we give them a program that they can sort of grow into and give them something that they enjoy and can utilize frequently over time. Definitely. And I bring that up because when you kind of relate that back to the self of uh, the concept of self-management, uh, let's say someone suffers some sort of like knee injury um, and they go to their uh, physician, they get diagnosed with said knee injury and then they go to physical therapy, chiropractor, wherever they go. The patient, in my mind, a lot of expectations that patients have is that I can't do very much myself because when I go to the physical therapist, when I go to the doctor, they'll tell me a very specific regimen and this is what I need to be doing for my need to get better faster and this is the optimal route this is what i should be doing that's the reason i bring this up because um, a lot of people do seek care for these very not quote unquote trivial but like the self-resolving injuries because they think they need care for this and this is something that will be very specific so that's kind of why i bring that question up yeah and i think that you know some of this stuff and some of the musculoskeletal diagnosis is just for lack of a better term, just bad. And I think that the narratives regarding these things have really sort of poisoned the well in that patients think that there are things that you have to change, but those things that they think you have to change don't really coincide with pain all that well. You know, in particular, you know, patients, a lot of the time, because they know that I'm a chiropractor, come to me to fix their posture. And then when I tell them that posture doesn't really have that good of an association <laughs> with pain, they look at me sideways and think that you become you know, Jill Hayden. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's, you know, it's revolutionary for them, but a lot of those same patients go on to do incredibly well because they no longer think that they have to avoid slouching when being in an incredibly upright and erect position was actually exacerbating their back pain. And they thought to themselves, why can't I stay in this position? Is it because I'm weak? Do I have a weak core? And then those patients who are oftentimes, you know, maybe hyper vigilant or have these preconceptions, um, they continue to think that something is wrong with them when there's absolutely nothing, you know, wrong with them. Definitely. And I do want to do a podcast in the future with a um, probably either an orthopedic surgeon or maybe some sort of physiatrist that is talks about acute musculoskeletal diagnoses, because in my personal opinion, I think a lot of them are not necessarily very good because unless you get an MRI on every single patient, you're not going to be able to accurately diagnose whatever's going on. And a lot of the treatments for these are going to be very similar. They follow a very similar progression. And that's kind of the concept that I want to push into the patient's hand and help them uh, be able to self-manage those. Um, so hopefully we'll get that going in the future. But for now, one of the concepts that's also kind of relates to this, no matter what exercise you're doing, no matter what protocol or generalized protocol you have the patient doing, you will have to modify activities based on what that patient's capable of. Can you talk about activity modification and how you approach that when it comes to rehabbing a patient through their injury? Yeah, I think that activity modification is, again, dependent on, I don't know, I sound like a broken record, but the patient's goals <laughs> and activity modification becomes a lot more complex depending on the specificity of the patient's goals. Like for a, a, a power lifter or a weight lifter, you know, we can modulate the, the volume, we can modulate, uh, you know, the, the frequency of their training. We can modulate maybe their form. We can give them some progressions, regressions, or variations of the exercises that they're trying to actually execute or become 
more proficient in. Um, we have a whole host of different things that we can use for that that athlete. And I think that you can apply the same principles with someone who maybe is not as active or doesn't partake in the same activities. Um, they just become a little bit more, I don't want to say muted, but they're, they're more nuanced. They're not as direct. Like if I have a patient, for example, who for example, she, she, like if I have a patient who goes on a walk and she says that my back hurts every time I go on a walk, there aren't very specific or tangible things that I can give her to modulate her pain that would be revolutionary for her. Like I might say, okay, when during the walk, do you feel pain? How long of a walk are you going for? I might try and ask her, prod her for a whole host of of different questions to understand, Mm -hmm. you know, the nuances of her injury. But it's not like I have the same availability to modify her activity as I would with a a lifter. Um, so it really depends on what the patient is is trying to accomplish there. And I think that you can modify exercise again by the things that I was talking about before, the volume, the frequency, uh, the actual execution of the exercise. Um, and those principles can remain to, regardless of the activity they'll just be either more or lack or more or less uh, uh, evident depending on the activity that you're actually doing. Definitely. I'm going to ask you if you have a personal example of that, if you can share, because people tend to love personal examples, but um, I'm going to give you some time to think. I'm going to share one of mine. Okay. Um, so as far as activity modification, I went whitewater rafting in Colorado. Um, I think, what was this, in May? And then I had a uh, moment where I almost got tossed out of my raft due to like a really big, I don't know what you call it because I'm not a whitewater rafter, but just hit us in the front of the boat, almost knocked me out. The only thing keeping me in was my left foot that was kind of tucked into one of these holds and all of my weight went onto my left knee and it was kind of with a valgus stress meaning my knee went inward yet it was still being like hyper um, extended it's kind of more difficult to paint the picture i'm sure you understand what i'm um, saying here so i thought i had torn my um a lot of ligaments in my leg um i'm not going to name specific ones because once again will not be necessarily specific unless you get an MRI. So I thought it was a pretty bad injury and I wasn't really able to walk after it. Um, I wasn't able to like go upstairs, put too much pressure on it, but I followed the acute concepts, which I would say that um, typically work, which are peace and love. Um, So I protected it, elevated it, did all those kinds of things. And then over the next few days, I saw what I could do with it. So eventually on the second day, I started walking. And I actually even did a very light hike on the same day of putting as little pressure on it, taking as many breaks as I needed, which I think helped me a lot. Um, the next day I was able to do another very easy hike. Um, just once again, taking breaks as uh, needed, all those kinds of things. And once I got back home from the trip, um, I went back to the gym cause I'm a lifter. So I have to go to the gym and I was still able to flex my knee to like a significant degree. But once I got to a certain point, I started experiencing pain. So I started loading myself to that specific point until I started feeling pain and then kind of, um, went from there. Eventually I tried to push it just a little bit every time I squatted and then eventually I got back to full range of motion. Um, painless, which was great. And then from there is when I started loading. And I think the entire process took maybe like six to eight weeks, but I was good to go. Um, I didn't need to go get an MRI. I didn't even see care for this. And that's kind of that entire concept of self-management, exercise selection based on what I did because I'm a lifter. We talk specificity there for what your goals are and then also how I modified my activity. So that's kind of the entire process. You have a story like that? Yeah, I think that's great. I have a similar story. Um, I tore my, my pec during a cable fly 
my junior year of undergraduate studies. And at that point in time, I, you know, the whole nine happened. I had bruising, I had swelling. Um, it was not pleasant. I stopped my workout immediately. Um, I went back home. I took, you know, a couple days off just because more than anything, the mental aspect of the injury really was, uh, really perturbed me because of how visual, visually scary that bruising actually appeared. Um, I actually didn't have pain that was so significant that it completely, you know, eliminated my range of motion. I could still do pressing motions. They would just become particularly painful. Maybe the last couple degrees of mm -hmm. the eccentric movement of, you know, a chest press or a chest fly. Um, so after a couple of days of rest, maybe two, three days of rest, I essentially got back into the gym. Um, during those two to three days of rest, I should clarify that I kept doing things like walking all over campus. I did still go to the gym and do cardio. Um, I just wasn't explicitly doing chest related exercises the first couple of days. But after those first couple of days, um, I went back to the gym and I basically did exercises that didn't perturb my chest that much, but still retained some semblance of a pressing motion. So the modifications that I made were basically changing the range of motion, changing the frequency. I, I hit chest three times a week, bumped it down to maybe two. And then I changed obviously the load. So I wasn't using the training load that I would typically use. I was probably using, you know, 20, 30, eventually 40, 50% of that training load that I would typically use. So finding the ranges of motion that weren't particularly painful for me, reducing the weight um, so that I could actually achieve those movements and still retaining a somewhat similar frequency as I did during my training block, I would say are the sort of modifications that I made to really help me stay in the gym, um, you know, not still get a, a good training stimulus and, um, you know, retain all the benefits of exercise without making that injury markedly worse. I follow the same sort of criteria as Greg Lehman or the same nomenclature as Greg Lehman where you want to calm stuff down and build it back up. Sometimes that includes actually taking complete time off. Other times that includes just not hitting the area directly. So that was sort of my thought, my low tech thought process going through that whole injury. Definitely. That's a great example as well. And I want to say for those of you who are listening at home, that both of us are invested in the world of rehab. We're training. Um, he is a rehab clinician right now. I'm in training and this is kind of what we do. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't just get any injury not checked out, that you can manage every single injury. There are certain things and certain times where we should definitely get things checked out. But we're just kind of sharing examples here. Once again, this is not medical advice. You should always seek the care of your doctor if you're worried about something and all those kinds of things. So I just want to put that out there that this is kind of our world and we're kind of better equipped to be able to manage these things. But this is what we're also trying to equip people with the knowledge to do eventually. Um, but I'm not saying if you have any injury, just skip your doctor because they suck. They still might be hugely beneficial. Yeah. I think that if, you know, most of the time, if, if you're getting pain that is particularly psychologically daunting or that's causing you grief and causing you to have limitations in your activities of daily living. If that pain is causing ridiculous symptoms or traveling to other parts of the body is decreasing sensation, like you're losing sensation in various parts of the body, you can't feel certain stimuli. Or if you're just worried about the condition and you never experienced something like that in the past, I think that those are all perfectly fine reasons to actually go and seek the advice of a medical professional. Um, again, like you said, 
this is stuff that we do day in and day out. So we're a little bit more equipped to, to handle these things. But if you have a good relationship with your healthcare provider, which I definitely hope you do, you should utilize them to the full capacity. Those people are there for, to advocate for you. Uh, they're there because they love what they do and they want to actually help you. So don't feel afraid or trepidatious about asking your healthcare provider for their opinion. Definitely. I like how you laid out those kind of uh, reasons where someone would go uh, seek care for it. Um, and then I also want to add on to that. If you are trying to self-manage it and if it doesn't get any better or if there's just no progression in your symptoms and you're going back to what you want to do, then also that's probably an indication that you should go seek care to some extent and see what someone else might have or a second opinion, stuff like that. So um, for sure. Um, when it comes to exercise selection as well, no matter how much we talk about there being no best exercises um, and kind of it being very specific to people, um, someone's always going to ask, is there a best exercise? Because people want to optimize everything. Is there a best exercise or certain ex exercises that are better than others for building resiliency to injury? So this is, I was listening to the podcast with uh, Adam Meekins, and I think that him and I probably have a very similar opinion on this. I don't think that there are best exercises for building resiliency and preventing injury. In fact, I was just reading a paper that warming up before activity doesn't seem to prevent the incidence of injury during huh. specific sports. Can you, can you send me that paper, by the way? <laughs> yeah, I'll send you that paper. I, I was just reading it in passing and I, because of the, the podcast with Adam Meekins and I was checking and challenging my biases and I wanted to make sure that what I thought was actually valid in accordance to the literature, but it doesn't seem like we can necessarily prevent injury, but there does seem to be some instances with certain conditions that we can maybe mitigate the risk of re-injury. So things like ACL tears and hamstring tears, some good proxies or metrics to keep tabs on are the strength that of the lower extremity. And sometimes the strength of the lower extremity seems to match up in some studies with the mitigation of re-injury in those various tissues. So I think that you can maybe prevent re-injury of different things or different tissues um, by keeping tabs on different metrics like strength. But I don't think that you can actually just prevent injury. I don't think that there's a way that you can make yourself so robust that you're you know, infallible to getting injured. I think that the reality of training is that the reality of training is that you're assuming some level of risk. And I think that that risk probably goes up and we could talk about this, but I think that the risk probably goes up the closer you are to either your maximal recoverable volume an RPE 10 or, you know, your one rep max. So I think that those risks are always there. There's just maybe different strategies we can employ to mitigate them at various time points throughout training. Definitely. Um, and this kind of also goes along with the training concept. We had uh, Eddie Cohen on this podcast um, way back in the day. So go listen to that podcast because it's a very different approach to kind of everything because he's a great lifter. Um, not necessarily that invested in the science, but he just intuitively knows a lot of things. And one of the things that he always says is that when you're training, um, it's kind of you want to build a suit of armor uh, for your entire body, which goes to the concept of kind of general fitness and general strength so that if something does go wrong, then other muscles are kind of there to help you um, kind of navigate the load of the injury and that kind of concept. So um, I just want to throw it out there and also uh, also for you guys to go check out that episode because it was a great one. Um, but exercise selection is one of the barriers that we talked about and we're not going to go into the entire discussion about various exercise but um briefly what are some of the other common barriers and then how do we help people remove them sure so i think that 
barriers to exercise is a really uh, sort of potent topic. And I think that like you alluded to, it's super complex and it's very multifaceted, but just to name a few, um, there's time, you know, lack of time. There's a lack of motivation. There's the very real possibility that the patient just doesn't enjoy exercise or the form of exercise that they're accustomed to partaking in or associate a physio or chiropractor with. Uh, there's a fear of being injured, which again is a very real fear that a lot of patients have. Um, there's inadequate equipment to partake in the form of exercise that you would like to partake in. There's the inability to actually go to the facility that you would like to, you know, sort of train in like transportation, walkability, things like that. Um, there's lack of encouragement. There's lack of self-management. There's lack of efficacy. There's a whole bunch of barriers to exercise, which is why you have to make exercise meaningful for the patient so that they actually go ahead and adhere to the form of exercise that you're prescribing to them. So I think that the couple ways that you can actually address those barriers, number one, in my opinion, is having robust and accessible public policies or public programs that incentivize exercise and allow patients who are statistically sort of disadvantaged in that area to actually partake in exercise. Um, I think that it's also important to have access to healthcare institutions and healthcare professionals that are advocates for you. So I think that a lot of barriers can actually be removed if you have, you know, at least one person in the healthcare system who understands your history, understands your goals, and can actually advocate for you. And then the last thing I would mention to remove some of those barriers is just the healthcare literacy aspect of things, which again, I think can be attenuated if you have a healthcare advocate for you who can help employ some patient education, make you or help you get up to date on basically what your condition entails and what the prognosis actually looks like. So I think it's a multifaceted, complicated issue, but the programs and finding someone who actually cares for you and can be an advocate for you is just wildly beneficial. And I think those are some of the main points that we should focus on here. Yeah, those three that you mentioned are definitely huge. And then on top of that, I want to add on, you mentioned uh, making exercise meaningful to the person, to the patient. And I think that might be the king of them all, in my opinion, because when you make something meaningful and like personal to that patient or whatever the person, then they have more of a incentive, I guess, quote unquote, an internal motivation to continue on and to do it. And it can eliminate a lot of the other barriers that may be facing. Because when we think of our lives, if something's very meaningful to us, we're going to try to go to end's length to try to accomplish it or try to make it happen. And if exercise can be made meaningful through a appropriate um, healthcare, like personal relationship, through social policies, through all those kinds of things, then I think it can be hugely beneficial and it'll um, kind of drive the person to complete it on their own. And I think that's the ultimate goal of what we should try to be doing as ultimately the onus is going to come on that individual for what's meaningful in their life and what they want to do versus however much we say you need to exercise and us trying to get them to do it. So I um, just want to belabor that point a little bit more. Yeah. And real quick, just as a side tangent, I had a patient uh, recently who she had a labrum tear diagnosis from two years ago. And that labrum tear diagnosis was preventing her from actually getting on the floor and play, playing with her, her children, her young children. And she was you know, the labor tear was sort of disincentivizing because she thought that she was going to get a tear if she got into hip flexion. Um, she thought that her chances of getting a, a tear were going to increase if she played with her daughter. And then she was also worried about getting up from the ground after playing with her daughter and getting sort of stuck in this position and making things worse and just, you know, making that whole cascade of events even worse. So 
basically our rehab was focused on getting her to go from a sit to stand um, off the ground and get into hip flexion and load that hip flexion and explore different ranges of motion of the hip. And that was always being relayed to the end goal of being able to play with her daughter uh, on the floor. And that was the most meaningful thing for her. She could care less about having a 315 squat. She could care less about, <laughs> you know, developing massive quads. She just wanted to play with her daughter. So that's what our rehabilitation program was uh, predicated on. Exactly. And that's what I mean by meaningful, um, because people's meanings are different to their situations and to their lives. And just because our pre and post goals is maybe health and exercise professionals as physicians is on function um, or on strength, being able to squat 315 or build some massive quads or just not be in pain. The patient might not be thinking of those and might be able to tolerate a little bit of pain, but their goal is to get down on the ground, play with their granddaughter, daughter, whatever it may be. So that is a great story and a great way to encapsulate kind of what we've been talking about. The last uh, thing that I want to ask you is we're kind of wrapping this up is you're in a coffee shop. Someone says, hey, you make memes, right? Your memes are so good. And they recognize you and they ask you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in those two minutes? Uh, I would suggest that they do not ingest too, too many memes or do not consume too many memes <laughs> first and foremost because you might go off the deep end. But uh, I think that it's either maybe Austin Baraki or Michael Ray that said roughly what I'm about to say. The first thing that I think is most important is to go after the low hanging fruit before you start to go after the very arduous specific, uh, you know, maybe sports specific uh, outcomes that you're trying to search for. I think that just hitting the physical activity guidelines is one of the best ways to actually, you know, get healthy and at least get into certain forms of exercise. Um, once you start with that foundation, I think it's probably easier to explore different modes of exercise. And it's not that hard to gain those health benefits if you take time out of your day to make sure that it isn't necessarily super arduous for you to actually exercise. So actually getting those minutes in and doing those things is probably the number one thing that I'd recommend to most people. After you actually uh, do that stuff, I would recommend that you would explore the other facets of your health. So after you got the exercise component down, I'd recommend that you make sure that you're doing at least one leisure activity or a hobby that basically makes you not stressed or that at least diminishes your stress. So have a hobby like going on walks, uh, weightlifting, um, playing with your kids, um, you know, doing dog training. I don't know, whatever you like to do. I suggest that you take time out of your week and do that thing for your own mental health. And if you feel like you can't cope with the stresses of your daily life, or if you feel like you need additional help, I strongly suggest that you go seek uh, counseling or therapy. It is wildly important and your psychological state is highly uh, ingrained in what you're actually going to perceive physically. So you need to basically uh, take care of that aspect of health um, if you're looking to maximize um, what you can actually do for yourself. And then lastly, I think that it's important to just quickly and briefly hit on sleep. I know that you had uh, a, a podcast, um, uh, someone on yeah. a podcast talk about sleep, but just super quickly, I think that hitting seven to nine hours of sleep per night is important. And then I think that sleep hygiene is important. So making sure that you're actually going to bed and waking around the same time uh, every single night, having sleep habits or sleep rituals that you do before bed, and then 
making sure that you're you know staying away from your phone uh, the an hour prior to bed is, is probably beneficial. So hitting on those three core components of care is probably beneficial because they all sort of have a similar um, effect on pain and that they allow your brain to uh, modulate descending pain signals. And all those things can help basically make you more robust. It's not that they uh, boost your health, quote unquote, but they can help you deal with the stresses that you have in life. So taking those things into consideration can basically um, make you more resilient. So that's what I would say. Very, very well said and very thorough. However, it looks like your coffee's gone cold. It might've gone a little <laughs> bit over two minutes there. Um, I appreciated having you on. I think it was a great conversation. If you guys who are listening to this are not already following him, um, his tag is the underscore rehab underscore Cairo. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. All right, good. I know off the top of my head. Um, so go find him on Instagram. <laughs> All the links will be down below um, in the show notes, wherever you guys are listening to this. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, um, Dr. Sierra, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.